1: And Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host Ian Cook and today we're talking about Rituals of Ethnicity, Tangmi Identities Between Nepal and India by Sarah Schneiderman. Sarah Schneiderman is a faculty member in the Department of Anthropology and the Institute of Asian Research at the University of British Columbia and the book is published by Penn. Rituals of Ethnicity is the first comprehensive ethnography of the Tangmi, a Himalayan community who moved between Nepal, India, and the Tibetan Autonomous Region of China. Through a careful and rich analysis of orality, funerary rituals, the practices of gurus, and circular migration, to name just a few of the topics covered, the book makes a forceful case for ethnicity as something people do rather than are, and looks into how such performances of ethnicity speak to questions of citizenship. And belonging across national borders. I had the pleasure of speaking with Sarah just a few moments before. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Sarah to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on and thanks a lot for your wonderful book. Thank you. So I really enjoyed reading this because I found out about a community which I previously knew nothing about and also the really wonderfully carefully constructed and compelling argument about ethnicity is something that people do rather than simply are. But before we get to speak about the the Tangmi, which is the subject of your book, this is a community of around 40,000 who live in the Himalayan region between India, Tibet and China and Nepal. Could you start by telling us what brought you to research amongst this community?
0: Uh, Well, thanks. First of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, And I'm glad to have this opportunity to talk about the work. Um, Yeah, I had been working in Nepal for several years already, when in uh, late 1997, I met Mark Turin, the linguist and anthropologist who later became my husband, and he had already started uh, doing PhD research on the Tangmi language. Uh, we actually met in another part of Nepal, where we had both previously worked further west, and he said, um, you really should come along with me and um uh, see what the environment is like, uh, because this is a community of uh, the Tangmi who speak their own language, who maintain their own cultural traditions, and yet very few people seem to know about them, and they seem to have very little profile uh, ethnographically or politically uh, so come on and and uh, let 's go and and learn about them together and so of course, that was an invitation that I couldn't refuse. So we set off to the areas of central eastern Nepal in and Sindhupalchuk districts, which are the heart of the Tangmi settlement area in Nepal. And um, I was just amazed at um, the experience because, as I said, I had already by that time spent several years in Nepal, uh, but I had never been in a cultural environment like this one. Um, people were speaking their own language fluently and seemed to have a whole world of um, cultural practice uh, and ritual, which um, really was not something that was accessible through existing uh, anthropological or other kinds of materials. I um, came back from that trip and looked through all of the bookstores and libraries in Kathmandu that I was familiar with and could find almost nothing uh, written about this community. So that sparked my curiosity, as had the fact that during my time there, uh, many people from the community said to me, hey, you're an anthropologist. Um, why are you working somewhere else in Nepal? Uh, we actually really need an anthropologist. And we know that we're missing um, the ethnography about us. This is an issue for us politically. Uh, this is how some of the um, younger members of the community who were already involved in political activism were thinking. So I basically left Uh, from that first visit with an invitation uh, to come back and and learn more. And um, that's how it all began. Uh, I had not yet started graduate studies at that point. And uh, then I ended up having a year-long Fulbright Fellowship uh, before I began my PhD program. And that's when I was really able to uh, begin understanding ethnographically what I found there. And again, this was in Nepal, in Dolaka and Sindhupalchuk districts, but the longer I spent there, the more I realized that uh, what I was missing in the story was the fact that so many people from the community spend much of their time outside of Nepal, specifically in areas of India, such as Darjeeling and Sikkim, and also in China's Tibetan Autonomous Region, which is just across the border, really only several miles as the crow flies from their villages in Nepal. So I became intrigued by trying to understand that part of the story. And also that began to answer some of the questions for me about why the group had been so mysteriously absent from the ethnographic uh, record. And, And there are other reasons as well, but part of the answer was that they had invested so many of their resources, into actually leaving the village um and uh, this created a different kind of profile than what uh, many earlier anthropologists had been looking for in their choice of um, village studies in the region
1: mm-hmm. well it's a it's a fascinating sort of call for, for you to come and do that research and uh and um so i suppose that the the best way to to get into the to the argument uh, of, of your book is to is to talk about ethnicity it's there it's there in the title and uh you you ask a question in the in the first chapter about ethnicity, which is a question that Tangmi ask themselves, is like, is ethnicity like a river or like a rock? So Sonia, can you could you pick this apart for us?
0: Ah. Uh, well, obviously the easy, uh, the short answer to that, it's not easy, never easy, but the short answer to that um is that it's both at once. And um, this is really the core of the argument. Um, I use those terms in part because um, there are many different Tangmi uh, origin myths and shamanic recitations in which phrases and metaphors like this are used. I cite one of those at the very beginning of the book. It's the uh, epigraph to the in, to the first chapter, uh, where the shamans chant, "We are solid like rocks and viscous like mud." Uh, so a kind of definition of themselves as a people uh, as being, on the one hand, uh, firm and solid and grounded, but on the other hand, fluid uh, and malleable. And that's a theme that actually runs through much of the oral literature uh, of the community. Uh, and I had this moment, which I also described in the first chapter of uh, being in a conference in Kathmandu where ethnicity was being talked about in much the same terms. Uh, but there it was being set up as a, as a kind of oppositional uh, situation that ethnicity could be either uh, fluid. In this case, the metaphor used was uh, by a sociologist was as a river, uh, whereas it could also be seen as fixed and firm like a rock. Uh, but these two, never the twain shall meet, these two couldn't really coexist together. And uh, in that moment of listening to that, Uh, conference presentation, I thought, well, that's interesting because these are precisely the kinds of metaphors that Pangmi themselves are using uh, to describe their identity. And yet, in their worldview, these two principles are not opposed, uh, but rather uh, mutually possible and simultaneously existent. So um, I then go back in in the book and, and connect that to Some existing tropes in Himalayan anthropology, particularly the work of William Fisher, who wrote about the Takali community of Western Nepal, also using this metaphor of a rock and a river. Uh, Now, uh, Fisher talks about how identity is not uh, sorry, how identity is like. A river uh, in the sense that it changes over time. It flows between rocks and it changes the uh, riverbed and it's not fixed. And one can't actually look at the same river uh, year after year and see it as precisely taking the same route as materially the same thing. And yet we all know it's the same river, although its course has changed. And that's the metaphor that he uses to talk about uh, identity and ethnicity for the Takali community. So I basically pick up on that Uh, and take it a step further to say, yes, well, you know, it's not really an oppositional um, framing between a constructivist or a primordialist viewpoint, to use the more traditional uh, academic terms, uh, but rather we should perhaps understand the um the recognition that ethnicity is constructed as the starting point and then take off from there to try to understand what that means for people who live with that reality all the time uh, and i felt that it was as time to kind of make this intervention because much of the last wave of writing on ethnicity both in Nepal, uh, say, with authors like Fisher uh, and others uh, working elsewhere in South Asia and and elsewhere in the world as well. Uh, And this is writing um, really in the kind of late 1990s and early 2000s, talks about the recognition that ethnicity is constructed as if that is sort of the end point. And therefore, we perhaps don't need further analysis of how ethnicity works and in my own experience, entering the field uh, at a much later date than uh, these many these other scholars whose work I, I build upon and respect greatly, uh, my own experience was well. Wait a minute, um, we can't really stop there. It's essential to understand how, recognizing that ethnicity is constructed, it takes life and becomes a driving force uh, in people's realities on the ground. And uh, that's how I found that Pangmi themselves were. Engaging with the concept, they were very well aware of the constructedness uh, of ethnicity as a category. Uh, it wasn't simply that they were acting in uh, sort of, um, you know, highly instrumentalized and, and kind of crass ways about this. However, they were thinking uh, really creatively about, well, what do we do in a sense with this resource as a marginalized community who is angling for uh, a different kind of recognition uh, within the nation state? In fact, several nation states. And so what I found was. It's a very active and self-reflective uh, and explicit discussion about these issues within the community, and that's what I seek to portray. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And what was really interesting, I found, was that not only are they are they self-aware, but they also there's a there's a performative aspect to uh, to ethnicity, right? I mean, this is this is key, and this is something which they which they reflect on themselves.
0: Absolutely, yes. And the thing is, it's a wide range of different kinds of performances. And this is what I try to uh, describe in the book as well, that there's not a singular way of being tangmi uh, or a singular set of practices and performances with, with which uh, one must engage to be recognized by others as tangmi. Rather, there is a wide range of different things one can do, and that ethnicity is actually a kind of collaborative production uh, that requires several different kinds of people, diverse individuals, uh, uh, participating in diverse forms of action in order to be produced as a whole.
1: Mm-hmm. And the, and this performance also, I mean, what was, and there's a really nice anecdote, I think, in the beginning of chapter two, when the Tangami from Paul are performing alongside Tangami in Darjeeling, in India, or at a stage function for certain, for, for a state, um, I, I guess, a state official in India. So it's really interesting how this performance shifts between different national contexts.
0: Absolutely yes, and that's actually something which is um, tagged as a wedding dance uh, as it's performed in that context and the uh, the actual performance event that you mentioned uh, was in India and it was on a stage in a, a kind of highly uh, scripted context, but it's a kind of dance that's actually done. Uh, across the Tami community in very uh, different kinds of environments, and so um, what I was able to see through that was that and the argument that I make is that that staged version of it is not a kind of inauthentic or derivative version but rather a fully authentic uh, version of a particular cultural form which is reinterpreted and transposed into a different context where historically um, those dances might have been performed inside a house in a domestic space late at night uh, for the internal consumption of members of of the Thangmi community uh, and also importantly for their deities Um, but in this context in India um, the the performance is turned outwards uh, for consumption by representatives of the state Uh, and yet I see those two as integrally linked so I'm kind of trying to work against the notion um, that contemporary performatization of culture or ritualization of ritual uh, to use ritual Richard Handler's term um, is somehow to be seen as less authentic or as a fall from grace but rather is productive in itself and feeds back into uh, the production of what I call uh, practice in, in the kind of community internal uh, context uh, that's performed for deities as well. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Wonderful thank you um, I- What's came through very strongly was the importance of uh, Tangmi's uh, oral practices, um mm-hmm. both in the gurus and in the it's there in the origin myths and, and, and so on. I was wondering could you could you talk through the sort of centrality of orality in uh in Tangmi culture?
0: Uh yes, thank you. That's a, a good question. Um so historically uh, the Tangmi language was not written. Um in fact some of the um first um, documentation of it has been done by Mark Turin, who I mentioned earlier. Um, He's a linguist and anthropologist, and um, his uh, book is a a grammar um, of the Tangany language. And uh, that came out in 2012 and is is one of the first times in which the language has been uh, rendered in uh, textual terms. And so this is a, a, a kind of Uh, Like many other languages, an oral tradition, and that actually, that orality is taken to be a central feature of um, Tangmi identity. Um, Now this is particularly the case um, in the practices of the Tangmi shamans who are their key religious figures and um, perhaps I should have mentioned earlier as well, uh, as this is a question that I always get asked, that Tangmi are neither Hindu nor Buddhist, which are the two primary religious traditions that people will be familiar with in the Himalayan region. Uh, Rather they practice their own religion, which they often call Tangmi Dharma or Tangmi religion, uh, which relies upon uh, shamans who they call gurus as the central ritual officiants. And the shamans are basically masters of oral literature in the sense that they have uh, memorized uh, these long drawn out ritual recitations, which contain the origin myths of the Pangmi people uh, and a whole range of stories which are actually constitutive of Pangmi identity that talk about how they came to be, where they are now, uh, how they were constituted as a community, who their ancestors were, uh, how their clans came into being. All of that information is transmitted orally. Um, And so for the gurus themselves, the shamans, uh, the practice of those ritual recitations, uh, which are known as paloke. Um, are actually a key component of the practice of um, identity and so without those recitations um, it's very difficult to reproduce and transmit um, Tangmi identity. So the gurus basically have have become invested in of course maintaining this oral tradition. Um, At the same time for many younger members of the community there's a real desire to textualize certain elements of the tradition in part um, to make it more accessible to a wider range of people um, to to be able to circulate uh, information amongst the uh, broadly dispersed, geographically dispersed community and so forth. Um, so part of what I describe, and this is in chapter three, is a sort of tug of war that emerged between um, often, not always, but often younger members of the community who were involved in different forms of political activism and were advocating uh, certain forms of textualization and then older members of the community, often, although not always again, uh, who were led by uh, gurus or shamans who asserted that um, morality was central to maintaining Tangmi identity and that if uh, these traditions were textualized in a way, uh, their authenticity uh, would be damaged. Uh, but so I look at how this um, uh, really power struggle played out over time and how the two groups basically found modes of accommodation to work with each other because ultimately uh, they both knew that they relied upon the other's form of, um, of uh, production uh, in order to, um, to survive. Uh, for the Guru's Ultimately, they realized that without the kind of um, external support and in many cases funding that could come uh, from being able to textualize and circulate um, forms of their ritual practice, Uh, they would not be able to continue, Uh, while at the same time, the um, activists also understood that without the gurus themselves, who are really the iconic figure of um, Tangmi identity and practice, um, their textual forms would have no sort of authentic referent uh, to return to. So um, I I look at how how this kind of plays out over time, and also I look at how the um, uh, different forms of visual media, in particular um, video, and more recently actually social media representations uh, enable a sort of um, uh, rapprochement be- between these um, different perspectives. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, I mean, it's, it's been at the background of our discussion so far, this sort of movement between three different national contexts uh, between India, um, the Tibetan Autonomous Region in China and, and Nepal. Um, but you hone in really really strongly in, in chapter 4 when you when you look at circular migration and how it creates you know what, what you call tangminess so could you please tell us why circular migration is so important
0: um yes thanks as you say that's kind of the <laughs> the kind of fundamental thing to understand about how this all works um th- Tangmi began migrating between Nepal and India in the colonial era, um, probably around the 1830s or so, when they were recruited as workers on the new plantations that um, the British were beginning to build in Darjeeling. Now, they were just a few of the many um, people from Nepal who went to work in Darjeeling. Uh, This is not only a Tangmi phenomenon. But one of the things that does seem to be uh, relatively unusual for the Tangmi themselves is that while other uh, communities went to India uh, from Nepal and then settled there, uh, the Tangmi community had some people who settled, but some people who came back to Nepal and then have continued a process of circular migration until the present. Um, And that's not uh, too common amongst other communities in Nepal. So what you have is a situation where um, for Tangmi, whose property, uh, whose homesteads homes literally so to speak are in these hill villages of um rural central eastern nepal um many members or at least one or two members from uh, each homestead each family will usually spend three to six months of the year in india and what they'll be doing there is um usually unskilled migrant labor um literally port- portering um Uh, goods up and down the streets of Darjeeling's Hill Bazaar, which um, doesn't have a lot of motorable roads, uh, doing construction work and other kinds of labor. And so they'll then uh, earn enough money there simply to feed themselves and maybe have a bit extra. And then they'll come uh, back home to Nepal, for the planting um seasons in which their uh, agricultural labor is needed, planting and harvesting seasons, so um they basically maintain this lifestyle in which um there are homesteads in Nepal, but there's a site of labor in India, um, as well as kind of temporary homesteads that get set up there to the extent that many uh, Tangmi children spend some of their time in Nepali schools and some of their time in Indian schools, Um, and many uh, Tangmi who do uh, participate in the circular uh, migration route uh, also have uh, some sort of uh, at least the paper documents of citizenship from both countries, even though technically that's illegal. So they basically set up this Kind of livelihood strategy, uh, which relies upon uh, regular cross-border migration, and that's sort of what I argue is the premise for um, much of the different ki- many of the different kinds of um, ethnic. Uh, production that I describe uh, precisely because you've got this community, which is uh, dispersed across borders. There is also a settled Pangmi community in India, uh, people whose forebears went uh, during the colonial era and stayed. Uh, and then you've got this group of people who are moving back and forth annually, um, who beyond actually bringing back remittances or money um, earned through their labor, are also bringing back and forth ideas uh, and transmitting notions about what culture is, how ethnicity should be performed, how to engage with the nation state and so forth. So what I try to show is there's actually a fairly high level of exchange and discussion between uh, India and Nepal in particular, um, and that the uh, various experiences that people have with these different nation states and their different policies significantly impact the way that the community as a whole um, engages in the production of ethnicity.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, this is Sorry, were you going to?
0: Oh, I was just going to say one thing I didn't mention was what happens in the TAR, uh, in the mm-hmm. Tibetan Autonomous Region. And this doesn't feature so strongly in the book, um, Uh, Although my original project had been to do ethnographic research in all three countries equally, um, I did manage to get research permission in China, but only for a much shorter time period. So I I wasn't able to to, um, include that material in the same way. Um, I do have a few articles in which is, in, in which um, that dynamic is discussed um, but many of the people who are moving back and forth between uh, Nepal and India on a regular basis are also spending shorter periods of time in uh, Tibet, the Tibetan Autonomous Region uh, they could go there um, and move across the northern border directly from their homesteads in Nepal uh, without needing a passport or a visa due to the border treaties in place between Nepal and China, and they often found many prospects for short-term labor there. So that introduces a third country uh, with a third set of policies uh, and attitudes towards this ethnicity as well, which also figured prominently in the ways that people thought about um, themselves and their own orientations. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And uh, another another way that certainly helped construct the way people thought about their ethnic, um, yeah, their ethnicity was certain organizations, Tangmi organizations. Um, so, I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about? Uh, about what these organ- organizations do and how they play into this construction of identity.
0: Yeah, thanks. Um, and I think uh, that's some of the um, material in the book, uh, which I think may be of most interest to area specialists, um, including uh, those who work in India, uh, because as well as those who work in Nepal, because uh, what's most interesting to me is that there's a very long historical trajectory of organizing around ethnicity within the Tangmi community. And that's and not a fact that's that's always well known. Um, many of the more recent arguments about ethnicity in this region have tried to suggest that it's in fact a new concept, uh, which doesn't have uh, historical roots in um, in the region, but in fact has um, been introduced more recently, particularly with the um, circulation of indigeneity discourse and discussions of indigenous rights, which really only emerged after the early 1990s. Um, but what the historical material uh, that I was able to access showed was that in fact um, there had been organized, there had been uh, active organizations uh, premised on the notion of a shared ethnic identity, uh, going back at least till the 1930s, if not earlier. Um, so the first Tangmi organization was founded in India. Uh, They claim that its official date of founding was 1943, uh, but there are photographs that show organized Tangmi meetings dating back to 1936, although the group didn't have a formal formal name and wasn't uh, registered in any way until 1943. Um, So that's really a long history there, and that organization, which has had several names over time, uh, but is now called the Bharatiya Tangmi Welfare Association, or the Indian. Tangmi Welfare Association, um, has created a, a, a site for a diverse Tangmi to come together and um, basically work on shared projects. Um, it's in some times, at some points in time, had primarily cultural agendas. For instance, it was founded uh, in order to um, provide the framework for carrying out funerary rituals in the Indian context where it was often hard for people to get both the uh, uh, material resources and also the labor resources that they needed in order to carry out traditional tiny funerary rituals. So that was a a kind of cultural purpose um, or what's often called a welfare uh, purpose of the original organization. And then over time, it also took up political agendas, um, trying to found a tangmi language school, for instance, and seeking funds um, from the state of West Bengal, as well as the central Indian state. And more recently, um, they have been at the forefront. The organization has been at the forefront of um, trying to uh, secure the status of scheduled tribe for Pangmi in India, which they don't currently hold. Um, So that's really what the uh, organization in India has been most focused on in recent decades. In Nepal, the central organization is called the Nepal PAMI Samaj, and its uh, predecessors date to the 1980s, which is when we we find the first historical evidence of Tangmi organizations uh, being formed in the um, rural areas where most Tangmi are based, uh, notably in Dolaka district. And the interesting thing in the Nepali context is that the ethnic organizations have had a long and intertwined history with political party um, organization in rural Nepal. And uh, I try to untangle some of that in um, uh, Chapter 5. Um but suffice it to say that um, in Nepal, in particular, there's been a sort of ongoing tension about whether marginalized communities can be most can most effectively mobilize uh, themselves on the basis of ethnicity or on the basis of class uh, in relation to communist mobilization. Uh, both. Maoist Party, which people have heard about in more recent years, but also uh, earlier, uh, what are often called mainstream communist parties, such as the United Marxist Leninists. So I try to untangle um, some of those histories there. And uh, I also look at how these two organizations have communicated over time and shared information to try to create a transnational uh, Tangmi community, even though both of them are also serving quite distinctive um, national uh, constituencies.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. We we've talked um, a bit about movement between different countries, and what what I found really fascinating uh, that was for the Tangmi, even their their deities move. So, I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about this and how this portability of deities intersects with the territorial claims that Tangmi want for an autonomous region for themselves?
0: Right. Thanks. Um yeah this is um this is some of the material in the book which I think has the most relevance to some of the contemporary political debates over indigeneity and mobility um uh, which are at the heart of um some of nepal's ongoing political issues uh, but which are also key to understanding for instance the Gorkellan movement in Darjeeling uh which is sort of the backdrop um, against much uh, against which um uh, much of the uh, Tangmi story plays out there um so in the Thangmi origin myths, which I referred to a little bit earlier, that are recited by the gurus or shamans in their ritual recitations, uh, we meet a couple who are the ancestral uh, forebears of the Thangmi, uh, who are called Yapati Chuku and Sunari Ama, uh, or they have some other um, kind of variant names as well that you'll sometimes hear. Um, this couple migrates up a set of uh, intertwined river. Um, pathways from south of uh, Dolaka, where the Tangmi current reside currently resides south of the hills, and the origin myth kind of tracks them, wandering up through um, these river basins and coming to the area where they ultimately settle. And with them, they carry a deity um, known as Bume, which literally means the earth de- deity. Um, that term Bume, of course, is not uh, distinct or unique to the Tangmi, but is used across uh, many South Asian languages and communities to describe territorial deities. But the Tangmi see their Bume as distinct um, precisely because it is the Bume or territorial deity that this ancestral couple brought with them when they settled um, in Nepal. So the central uh, temple now for Tangmi ritual um, practice is located in Dolaka district in a place called Suspa, and that is where this deity was uh, is believed to have been installed by this ancestral couple when they first arrived in Dolaka. Now, That temple has actually grown from being a kind of open air site of worship where the Bume itself is personified by a black rock. Uh, And over time, it's been enclosed and had a temple built around it, uh, which has actually now been destroyed in the um, recent earthquakes. Uh, But the deity still exists there. Uh, However, people are well aware that the deity only came at a certain historical moment and it can also be replicated and brought uh, with Tangmi wherever they go. So, in fact, there are many subsidiary Bhume shrines across different Tangmi settlements in Nepal, um, which have been there um, for uh, quite a long time and where local communities can engage in their ritual practices without having to go to the central temple. So by the same token, when Pangmi migrated to India uh, and also northwards to Tibet, they were actually able to bring the deity with them. So there are also Tangmi Bume shrines in India, uh, in Darjeeling and Sikkim. And these shrines uh, have to refer back to the central site at Suspa. Uh, and often people will bring uh, rocks or soil from that central um, that central temple uh, to the new uh, temples in order to consecrate them and basically set them up within a uh, territorial framework that joins um, all of these uh what would we call them, all of these manifestations of Bume. And so this portability means that it is really possible for a tangmi to at once have a very strong connection to a particular locale, a particular place where that central Bume shrine stands, but also to see their own mobility as uh, flexible because they're able to install their deity wherever they go. Um, And so I argue in that Uh, in chapter six of the book, that in fact, uh, this creates a different way of understanding and and really thinking through the complexities of indigeneity, because it gives us a way of thinking about both emplacement and mobility uh, within the same framework. So rather than needing to see these again as oppositional uh, things, that one is either emplaced and has a strong commitment to a particular territory, or one is mobile and cosmopolitan, uh, actually we can see these two uh, dynamics of life as being connected within the way that Tangmi themselves uh, think about their own mobility and their own relationship to place through territorial deities. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Wonderful, thank you. Now that we're on the topic of rituals proper, let, let's stick on that and let's talk a little bit about the the marriage and, and funeral rituals. The, you argue these play a very important role in uh, how the Tangmi recognize themselves. So could you tell us a little bit about these important life cycle rituals?
0: Right. Well, as I mentioned already, the Hangmi are neither Hindu nor Buddhist, uh, but maintain their own religious practices. And so in order to do that, of course, they need key ritual events where everyone can come together. Uh, These ritual events take the form of life cycle rituals. Of course, every community has these, um, but I argue that for the Tangmi, these are really uh, central and key, uh, both marriage and funerary rites in different ways. Uh, And this is because it's at these events that um, large groups of the community come together and in fact, redefine uh, each time what it is to be Tangmi, recognize each other and all of their diversity as Tangmi, and then basically uh, reproduce those ideas and transmit them to um, the next generation. Now, the funerary ritual is uh, really very interesting because I think that's the place in which um, a kind of historical uh, tangmi practice has been um, maintained to the present most successfully in the sense that that ritual is carried out uh, purely by... The Tangmi's own officiants, the gurus, it's done exclusively in the Tangmi language. Uh, And the whole uh, ritual process itself um, relies upon a, a whole notion of reconstructing the body of the deceased out of a whole series of foodstuffs uh, and naturally occurring products, uh, which at the same time links that deceased body to place and basically uh, creates that space, that place as Tangmi uh, territory at the same time as it enables the soul of the deceased to uh, move on. And also intriguingly, the Tangmi um, notion of where that soul goes is to an underworld rather to rather than to a heaven or some other kind of um, some other kind of place. So there are really many uh, features of the funerary rituals which are distinctive and which some uh, which enable um, Tangmi to um, uh, really describe to themselves their uniqueness and to create a sense of a, a community which is. Um, uh, separate from the others with whom they coexist. And Tangmi funerary rites are also required to be carried out um, in uh, sort of ethnically um, specific spaces. Um, the marriage rituals have shifted much more over time and have been um, influenced by many what people would often call Hinduized elements. Uh, in a way that's really interesting because the marriage rituals, in a in a sense, form a an important site of discussion and debate for members of the community themselves as they try to work out how they want to be uh, Tangmi um, going into the future. What elements of their past they think are most important to reproduce and carry on, uh, but also how they want to be, uh, in a sense, at what level they do want to be assimilated and understood to be part of a broader um, kind of regional uh, sense of a, a kind of ritual world, which is recognizable to others. So in a sense, the marriage rituals are kind of more outward Facing because they engage with um, other ritual elements um, that are in, in the tiny environment, whereas funerary rituals tend to be more inward facing. But I argue that both of these are Really essential, and that one mustn't sort of discount the marriage rituals as being somehow Hinduized and therefore not Tangmi or not relevant to understanding what Tangmi are, because it's in fact in that site of contestation and discussion about these issues that kind of tangmi-ness comes to the fore. Uh, and it's also in the marriage rituals themselves in which people are assigned a Tangmi clan. And that's a kind of key component of being Pangmi at an individual level. Um, I don't think I mentioned earlier that there are seven male clans and several fem- seven female clans. Uh, and this is one of the really interesting features of Pangmi um, social structure that they have um, seven of each gendered clans uh, altogether comprising a system of what's called parallel descent. Uh, this means that um Girls get their clan identity from their mothers and boys receive it from their fathers. Um, So that's a different system than uh, either patrilineal or matrilineal systems. And this is really uh, quite unusual. It's only practiced by a a kind of handful of communities around that world, around the world. And it's through the marriage rituals that these uh, clan identities are passed on uh, and confirmed. And then in funerary rituals um, that they're basically um, well, what would I say that they're brought together as a whole community? Because in both of these rituals, um, you need, in theory, at least one member of each of the seven male clans and one member of each of the seven female clans to proceed. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And I remember in one part of the book, you I'm sure probably in the, in the last substantial chapter, when you, you said when you were asking about uh, what was the most... You know what's the most important ritual element of of tangmi that I that I should look into? People often told you it was a it was a particular a particular ritual. This uh, Devikot Khadga Jatri, if I pronounce that correctly. So I was wondering, Jatra, Jatra. I've just made it. I've just made it uh, into said it in a Canada way, South Indian way. I'm sorry. No <laughs> <Said> worries. <it. laughs> Jatra, yes. And uh, so, could you tell us a little bit about this and why it was so central?
0: Right. Um, so this is, as you say, the final chapter of the book, and I use it to to bring many of the themes together. Um, this uh, It's actually two rituals, but uh, they occur within the same calendrical time frame. So I talk about them together, Devikot and Kadka Jatra. And these occur during the period of Dasain, uh, the fall harvest festival known as Dasera in many other parts of South Asia. Um, and um, in this ritual, historically, members, specifically designated members of the Tangmi community, had to come to the um, uh, center of Dolaka Bazaar and participate in a ritual orchestrated by the Newar ethnic community and play basically a role of the, the kind of subjugated uh, ritual bearer of ritual impurity. Uh these two Tangmi men would have to come and and uh in fact drink the blood of a live baby buffalo. So the, the buffalo's uh vein was pulled out of its neck and severed while it was still alive and uh these men had to cup their hands and drink the blood from it. Um now, you know, in a sense this is very uh, kind of viscerally um effective and uh the fact of that ritual action itself was a topic of much debate amongst members of the pangmi community and as you said already uh when i would kind of uh, in early in my research ask quite open questions about what the most important pangmi ritual was and so forth everybody would point me towards this ritual um of course the intriguing one thing is that this is a ritual in which the pangmi seem to play um this role of impurity and uh subjugation. So I was trying to understand what was going on there. Um, Now, Father Casper Miller, who was a Jesuit priest who uh, conducted a great deal of wonderful ethnographic research across Nepal, uh, wrote a book called Faith Healers of the Himalayas in the 1970s, in which he detailed um, this ritual, among many others. And he basically uh, made an argument that the Thangmi and the Nawar had two different understandings of what was going on, and that the Tangmi uh, were able to actually interpret um, the ritual within their own uh, within their own framework as being a ritual of power and this seemed to kind of bear up. Uh, amongst the discussions I had with Thangmi in Nepal, where people would tell me about how precisely because they played this key role in the Newar ritual, it enabled a certain sort of power uh, for the Thangmi themselves vis-à-vis the Newar, who were the historical uh, rulers and and really dominant uh, to the Thangmi in the region. So this seemed to make a lot of sense, Uh, but at the same time, there was a great debate about it. And there were many um, people who I might call reformers within the community, largely based in India and or younger members of the community in Nepal who thought, no, this ritual is really uh, something negative that we shouldn't do because in a way we're basically agreeing to be bearers of impurity and that's not something we want to do. So there was an ongoing and very active debate about this issue. Um, Intriguingly, In India, some of the younger activists there who were seeking scheduled tribe status um, within the Indian national framework picked this ritual up as a positive thing, uh, precisely because the quite antiquated criteria for scheduled tribe status in India, um, which still date to a 1965 uh, report include things like uh, primitive, uh, primitive traits and backwardness and geographical isolation and so forth. And these young activists in India thought that the sight of Kangmi drinking blood uh, were, was actually very powerful for that purpose, uh, because what could be more primitive, so to speak? So you can see how uh, there are many different perspectives on um, uh, these different, uh, these uh, the same uh, ritual action. Now, of course, the problem for those activists. In India just as it was um, for other discussions about indigeneity is that this ritual only takes place in Nepal so how could they make an argument based on that for a certain status within the Indian national framework and uh, that's something that they had to struggle with but ultimately they seemed, this group that wanted to maintain the ritual in the face of others who were seeking to uh, do away with timely participation in it, uh, the group that wanted to maintain the ritual seemed to triumph at a certain point in my uh, research um, early on. And I actually wrote an article about this, which was published in 2005 in the European Bulletin of Himalayan Research, where I sort of um, took up. Uh, this position that it was a ritual of power for the Tangmi, and although I wasn't engaged in making such a uh, a, a strong, um, let's say, political argument per se, I kind of myself wanted it to contribute to the agendas of those who were wanting to maintain the ritual because that seemed to make sense to me. Um, The thing that happened that really surprised me and shook me up was that the next year after that article was published in 2006, uh, they actually suspended participation in the ritual so it seemed to me that I had got it wrong but also all these other members of the tiny community had got it wrong and in the concluding chapter of the book then I I sort of use that as an opportunity to rethink and reflect on the whole process of research to try to understand what was actually happening and how it could be uh, that things were actually so different to how they seemed to me and um, what I end up Uh, suggesting at the conclusion of the book is that, in fact, the tangmi ritual, participation in the ritual did not end. And this is what I learned later. It simply became transposed once again into a new environment, just as we spoke earlier about certain kind of uh, practice rituals, wedding rituals being transposed from the intimacy of a home to the public space of a stage. Um, This ritual, in fact, had kind of gone the other direction where it turned out the Tangmi men who had drunk the buffalo's blood were still being possessed by the goddess. I forgot to mention that earlier. Um, They go into trance possessed by one of their own deities in order to, to basically have the power to drink the blood. They were still having that experience, but they were just going into trance in their own homes rather than coming to Dalaka Bazaar to participate in the Noir orchestrated ritual. So in a sense, they had uh, sort of rescued and resuscitated the indigenous rich aspect of the ritual um, and uh, reframed it within their own um, home context. Now, when I asked several people who were deeply involved in the practice of, of this ritual, Why this had happened at this particular historical junction. The first answers that I got were that, well, the Maoists, um, political activists, had asked us to stop, and so we felt that we had to stop. But this didn't really make full sense to me because, in fact, there had been many Maoist requests for this and other things in the past, which nobody seemed to pay much heed to. Um, And when I pushed a little bit further, uh, basically, it turned out that people were feeling in 2006, um, after the time of the Second People's Movement in Nepal, when the um, king was ousted, um, the Shah dynasty was deposed. And at that time, there seemed to be an a entirely new horizon opening up for a future, more inclusive state of Nepal, uh, but many uh, people in the Taimi community felt OK, we don't really need this anymore. We don't really need to show ourselves to be subservient to the Noir and assert power in this kind of way. Now we have our own modes of asserting political power, say, through organizations like the Nepal Pami Samaj, and we're able to uh, basically... Um, uh, reframe this ritual in a different way, which is more effective for us personally. And so that's really the argument that I end up making at the end of the book that the uh, Tangmi uh, ritual practice and therefore Tangmi modes of producing ethnicity uh, is, of course, always shifting over time, returning to the ideas that we talked about in the beginning. Um, but certain elements of it remain constant, and those are sort of uh, the rocks that Tangmi individuals. Um, can base their own sense of identity around. However, the ways in which those rocks or those kind of features of um, the practice of, of ethnicity work may be very different in particular historical and political um, conjunctures. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. I'd just like to, I suppose, mention for the, for the listeners who have not yet had the chance to read the book, there are so many... Really wonderful anecdotes in the book that stuck in my mind after reading it from like activists trying to urge people to eat rats to these amazing stories of subterranean um, hotels in Darjeeling and so on. But I'm wondering if there's anything that, that you think that I've missed with my questions that you'd like to highlight.
0: Not really. I think you've done a wonderful and thorough job. Um, you've <laughs> kind of helped me talk through the whole book. There, There is a lot in there mm-hmm. and uh, I hope people will dig into it themselves and, and we'll find things that we haven't mentioned here. Um, I mean, the one thing that I would like to talk a little bit about is what's happened since the book, if that's okay with you, Um, because um, the the kind of really challenging thing uh, for me this year has been that the book was released in March 2015, and then, of course, in April and May 2015, Nepal experienced two very severe earthquakes, um, the heart of which, uh, at least the second earthquake, was smack in the middle of the Tangmi um, heartland. So it was a very challenging year for everybody who is described in the book, particularly those um, who live in Nepal uh, and also for me secondarily uh, as I tried to understand um, what would happen uh, and also tried to work out how uh, the book might in some way um, be useful or helpful um, to people as they uh, have worked to rebuild their communities. Because I think, well, let me just take a step back for a second. One thing that we haven't really talked about is the book's framing um, as an ethnography, which is intended to be useful to the community themselves, uh, as well as to scholars. And that's really a commitment that runs through the book. Um, in a sense, the book is a is a symbolic form. It's that ethnography that the As we discussed at the beginning. And um, although there may be issues that I know certain members of the community have with the way I've represented certain details or facts. Overall, I think as a symbolic form, um, the book is useful because it's something that can be present, that they can present in different contexts to sort of assert um, their own presence. And this is in a context where um, ethnography has historically been very important to ethnic claims, both within Nepal and India, um, both for state purposes and also for NGO purposes and so forth. So that's always been in my intention with the book. And the earthquakes then, of course, radically changed the situation. So suddenly, um, it was not so much these ish, these uh, campaigns around ethnic recognition, which were consuming people, but very material uh, needs about how to survive in a context where basically every household was destroyed, uh, every school, every community building across the entire um, Tangmi Heartland area in Dalaka and Sindhupalchuk districts. And I myself felt very... Um, What's the word? Very perplexed and somewhat troubled by this, that I had just written this book, which in fact is quite expensive in its initial hardback copy and doesn't now seem to contribute to the immediate agendas of the people with whom I work in the way that I hoped I would, Because the way that I hoped it would, because those agendas were uh, changed overnight uh, by the earthquake. So, um that's something I've been working with, and some of the things that I did decide to do were to make a commitment to donating any royalties that the book ever makes, if any, <laughs> um, to to um, ongoing Tangmi efforts to reconstruct um, uh, various parts of their earthquake destroyed livelihoods. So that commitment is there, and uh, I also held a book launch in uh, in Nepal in. Uh, was it August? Yes, at which I was able to sell the book for a discounted uh, local rate. And all of those funds were contributed to the Nepal Thami Samaj's fund um, to support uh, Thangmi families who had lost members in the earthquake. And there are about 50 50 families who have suffered in that way. So that's been very important. Um, It's also been really interesting to try to consider what the earthquakes, how the earthquakes will change the uh, situation that I describe, uh, particularly because tiny houses, which are really a strong anchor for identity that I talk about throughout the book, are no longer really there, and it's um, unclear still how it will be rebuilt. Um, also, the political situation in the wake of the earthquakes with the uh, promulgation of a new constitution uh, in September of this year has also created a, a new set of challenges and and sadly it doesn 't look like that new inclusive Nepal, which people were so hopeful about in two thousand and six, as I talk about at the end of the book that hasn 't really come to pass and um, there are a lot of um, challenges ahead um, still regarding the constitution and the um, ongoing unrest that it 's unleashed and so um, i as always you know I feel like the book documents a certain period between about 1998 and 2008 Um, but of course it stops there and it will be very interesting and and, uh, well I think uh, important to understand what happens next. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. Thank you Um, well talking a bit about the about the future so now that you mentioned this book came out in March uh, what are you currently working on or what are your future plans?
0: Well, um, I've had a couple of different projects in the last few years, but the the main one has actually been an ethnography of the state restructuring process in Nepal since 2006, which is when the formal uh, comprehensive peace agreement was made that ended the 10 year long civil conflict between uh, the Maoists and state forces. And so um, since, let's see. About 2013, late 2013, I have been working on a project which was called Restructuring Life, Citizenship, Territory and Religiosity in Nepal's State of Transformation. And um, to that end, the idea was really to try to understand from the outside in how... Nepal was actually changing um, as it went through this process of quite literally restructuring the state in terms of its administrative form, uh, but also how local people themselves had uh, experienced those shifts uh, in their own sense of political consciousness as political actors and agents. So for this project, I wanted to build upon uh, the in-depth work with the Tangmi that appears in the book, but also go beyond it to try to understand Nepal as a whole. Of course, that's never really possible. Um, but it, from my own my own way of doing this was to choose research sites in three dis- districts, one of which is Dolaka, uh, another one of which is Mustang, which is in the uh, northwest uh, Himalayan part of the country. And that's another area where I had actually worked earlier prior to beginning my work with the Thang-ni. And then I also selected a new research site in Banke, which is in the um, western Terai. Along the border with India, and so working with um, a research team of um five Nepali researchers, we constructed a kind of in-depth ethnographic survey uh, that addressed these issues of how people experience citizenship, territory, and religiosity in during this process of transformation that Nepal has experienced since two thousand um, and six uh, and conducted uh, over over 150 interviews, and I'm in the process of um, basically trying to understand and analyze all of that. It's it's quite revealing material. Now that was ongoing at the time of the earthquake, which quite literally shook everything up for us uh, because we could no longer continue working in the way that we were before. And the ground reality and and context, political context also changed so radically very quickly that um, the questions no longer seemed relevant. So I'm still trying to work out what exactly to do. With that and how to go forward next. And I'm um, and looking at different ways of connecting up that pre earthquake, just pre earthquake material uh, that does, in fact, speak to many of the ongoing political issues now with a closer look at some of the um, post earthquake political dynamics. Um, so that's the, one of the main projects I'm engaged in. I'm also wanting to um, conduct new research in India um, and continue. Um, inquiries there one of the things that I am working on um, with another colleague Townsend Middleton who also uh, works in Darjeeling is an edited volume um, which looks at um, uh, dynamics of history politics and environment in Darjeeling and so that's a project that we've um, just recently undertaken
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wonderful they they both sound like fascinating projects and we look forward to being able to read the, the fruits of those sometime in the future um, but for now, it's the, it's the it's the end of our discussion. I'd like to thank you again for, for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed the book. I'd like to recommend it to, to everyone listening. It's really a, not just is it fascinating, as I hope people have heard, but also it's a, it's a really wonderful read. So thanks a lot for coming
0: on. Well, thank you very much for having me.
1: Thanks so much for downloading the New Books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about Rituals of Ethnicity by Sarah Schneiderman. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation today with Sarah and I hope you're tempted to go and read the book for yourselves. ta